I'm going to read Luke 1, 26 through 38. Please follow along as I read aloud. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Those are the words that Catholics and other Christians throughout the world pray, honoring Mary, excuse me, her motherhood of Jesus, and asking for her prayers. But the first time that that line was spoken, it wasn't a prayer. It was a greeting, a strange kind of greeting given by the angel Gabriel in the text that we heard this morning. As Gabriel comes to charge Mary with the most important responsibility that any mere human has ever had, he begins by telling her, the Lord is with you. As we prepare for the season of Advent and going into Christmas, we'll be thinking about this moment and all that it meant a lot. The Lord was with Mary as she, by her motherhood, conceived and bore the word of God. We worship a God who has revealed himself in the vehicle of motherhood, a God whose salvation of the world comes out of the traumas of motherhood under an oppressive regime. It was a poor refugee mother fleeing the power and rage and envy of a powerful man named Herod who brought into being the very word of God, Jesus Christ. My preaching professor in seminary uh, named Jerusha Neal has developed a whole strategy for preparing sermons based on looking at Mary. First, my professor teaches, the Lord was with her, and then she conceived the word, then she bore the word, then she named the word Jesus. Jesus is the one that the Gospel of John calls the very word of God, and Mary bore that word. 
Greek theologians call Mary the Theotokos, or the mother of God. She was there when our Lord was born. She was there when he died. And she was among the women who first proclaimed the good news of his resurrection at the beginning of a new world shaped by hope in God's redemption. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Our only hope as Christians is in trusting the word that this poor, dispossessed, displaced refugee mother brought to us. And today I want to tell you a similar story, the story of Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs is a woman born into slavery and a prophet who spoke from the experience of motherhood under slavery, carrying a divine word of judgment and exhortation to white people, and particularly white Christians, living during the time of slavery. The first thing that we need to know about her is that the Lord was with her. Now, as I've been preparing for this sermon for the last several weeks, I'm not, I haven't been exactly sure how to tell her story, or even that I'm the right person to tell her story. I've never lived under slavery. My ancestors were not enslaved. I'm not a mother or a woman. All that I can really hope to do in faithfully telling her story is rely on her own words and her own witness and let her words speak to all of us, myself included. So I'll be quoting heavily from the autobiography that she wrote, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Now, before we get any further into this story, I want to give a quick disclaimer. Um, one thing that sets uh, Harriet Jacobs apart um, from other people who wrote narratives um, who had escaped slavery is that she has a particular focus on the experience of women and girls and mothers under the systems of slavery. And some of those experiences include traumatic events that may be sensitive for some listeners. Um, and so if at any point during uh, this sermon, there's something that is, is hard to hear or difficult to hear, um, or maybe if, if you have children with you and, and you want, um, and you want to excuse yourself, that's absolutely acceptable. Um, please, at any time, if anything is challenging for you, um, don't feel the need to stay stuck in your seat. And um, if anything in this sermon does bring up something difficult for you, um, we have uh, excellent pastoral staff and lots of resources available as well. Before we get into her story, though, um, I want to read something from the preface of her book. This is what she wanted her readers to hear before learning her story, and so I think we should hear it as well. She says this, I do earnestly desire to arouse the women of the North to a realizing sense of the condition of two millions of women at the South still in bondage, suffering what I suffered, and most of them far worse. I want to add my testimony to that of abler pens to conceive, or sorry, to convince the people of the free states what slavery really is. Part of the reason I wanna tell you about her and her story is because her story begins in the same place as mine, a little town called Edenton, North Carolina. This is Edenton. It's a little coastal town up in the Northeast corner of North Carolina. And it's a town that has deep roots in colonial history and it, a lot of its self-understanding comes from its connection to colonial history. Um, maybe the quickest way to understand Edenton is like it has a real Stars Hollow vibe, if you've ever seen Gilmore Girls. Um, just think like Stars Hollow of North Carolina, 
and that's pretty much Edenton. Um, I was born in this town in 1997, and Harriet Jacobs was born in this town in 1813. Harriet's mother died when she was just six years old, leaving Harriet to be treated as the property of her mother's white mistress. Harriet's father, like my own father, was a skilled builder and would travel all throughout the area and to different states to supervise the construction of all sorts of different buildings. However, unlike my father, he carried out his work for no pay and was under the threat of beatings and death. They literally worked him to death, and he died when Harriet was just 13. 13 years old, and she was an orphan. Around that time, Harriet was sent to live with Dr. James Norcom, a physician working in Edenton. Here you can see um, there's a side-by-side -side of his house and the parking lot in Edenton where his house used to be. And uh, I think there's also a picture of his grave site. Um, that's at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Edenton, which is still a functioning church. The only words other than his name and, and date of birth and death on that grave is one of the most distinguished physicians of his time. Knowing Harriet Jacobs' story, that epitaph is, is painful and, and brutally ironic because Dr. James Norcom would create for Harriet a living hell. He began sexually harassing and assaulting her when she was just 15 years old. And after describing these horrors in painful detail, Harriet writes this, I now entered on my 15th year, a sad epic in the life of a slave girl. My master began to whisper foul words in my ear. Young as I was, I could not remain ignorant of their import. I tried to treat them with indifference or contempt. My master's age, my extreme youth, and the fear that his conduct would be reported to my grandmother made him bear this treatment for many months. He was a crafty man and resorted to many means to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes he had stormy, terrible ways that made his victims tremble. Sometimes he assumed a gentleness that he thought must surely subdue. Racism and white supremacy and slavery contained such a deep form of evil and sin that they led this physician, trained in the art of healing and sworn to do no harm, to inflict countless, endless, unimaginable harm and trauma on a powerless child. Eventually, Harriet met a white man in town named Samuel Treadwell Sawyer, and they began a secret relationship. And eventually, Harriet um, became the mother of two children by Samuel Treadwell Sawyer. And this is when the traumas of her life in slavery reached a new and horrific depth. When she was giving birth to her son, he was premature and he weighed only four pounds. The birth was so painful and in such unsanitary conditions that neither Harriet nor the baby seemed likely to live. And this is what Harriet writes about that time. I heard the doctor say I could not survive till morning. I had often prayed for death, but now I did not want to die, unless my child could die too. Many weeks passed before I was able to leave my bed. I was a mere wreck of my former self. For a year, there was scarcely a day when I, could, when I was free from chills and fever. My babe was also sickly. His little limbs were often racked with pain. And Dr. Norcom would continue his visits to look after my health. And he did not fail to remind me 
that my child was an addition to his stock of slaves. Much of Harriet's writings reflect on the traumas of motherhood and slavery. She writes about how every New Year's Day, it was common for slaveholders to buy and sell people as property and hold auctions. She writes this, you happy free women, that's a lot of text on one slide, I'm sorry. You happy free women, contrast your New Year's Day with that of the poor bondwoman. With you, is it is a pleasant season, and the light of the day is blessed. Friendly wishes meet you everywhere, and gifts are showered upon you. Even hearts that have been estranged from you soften at this season, and lips that have been silent echo back, I wish you a happy new year. Children bring their little offerings and raise their rosy lips for a caress. They are your own, and no hand can take them from you. But to the slave mother, New Year's Day comes laden with particular sorrows. She sits on her cold cabin floor watching her children, who may all be torn from her the next morning. And often does she wish that she and they might die before the day dawns. She may be an ignorant creature, degraded by the system that has brutalized her from childhood, but she has a mother's instincts and is capable of feeling a mother's agonies. Oh, four years later, Harriet's daughter was born. And she writes that when they told me my newborn babe was a girl, my heart was heavier than it had ever been before. Slavery is terrible for men, but it is far more terrible for women. Super added to the burden common to all, they have wrongs and sufferings and mortifications peculiarly their own. The threats and harassments and assaults from Dr. Norcom continued. And at this point in her story, you might be wondering, where was the church in all of this? Well, Harriet writes that typically slaveholders were hesitant to allow people under their bondage to worship and to hear scripture, afraid that they might get it into their heads that they're made in the image of God and that God acknowledges their humanity. But after Nat Turner's slave rebellion, several slaveholders in Edenton got nervous and arranged for a very particular and controlled Christian message to be given to the slaves at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. Here's how she describes the sermon given by the priest, Reverend Pike. His text was, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Pious Mr. Pike brushed up his hair till it stood upright and in deep solemn tones began, Hearken ye servants, give strict heed unto my words. You are rebellious sinners, your hearts are filled with all manner of evil. Tis the devil who tempts you, God is angry with you and will surely punish you if you don't forsake your wicked ways. The church leaders, often slaveholders themselves, used their power to muffle Christ's message of liberation and God's nearness to suffering people. In an attempt to perpetuate the white supremacist and authoritarian structures of chattel slavery and enrich themselves off stolen labor. But for all their efforts, they could not keep God's presence away from God's people. You see, what, what they missed and what people who co opt Christianity for their own power and wealth always miss is that God's presence is always with the poor, the oppressed, and the hurting. Theologian James Cone writes this, 
The gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. If you want to find the presence of Christ, look no further than the oppressed and hurting people in our world. Those are the places where Jesus goes. And this is true, as true on a cosmic scale as it is on a local one. Philippians chapter 2 says that, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's mission is solidarity with the oppressed and the hurting. And if you're looking for him, you'll find him there. Despite the efforts of of 19th century white clergy and slaveholders, Christ could not be held back from being near to the poor and oppressed. Harriet Jacobs knew this at a deep and intuitive level, and so did lots of people around her. Local enslaved people organized their own worship services, and here's how Harriet describes them. It was so long before the reverend gentleman descended from his comfortable parlor that the slaves left and went off to enjoy a Methodist shout. They never seemed so happy as when shouting and singing at their religious meetings. Many of them are sincere and nearer to the gate of heaven than sanctimonious Mr. Pike and other long-faced Christians who see wounded Samaritans and pass by on the other side. This form of life, forced labor, enduring sexual harassment and assault, forced to attend demeaning and spiritually traumatic worship services, continued for Harriet for some time. Until eventually, in 1835, Harriet learns that she and her children are to be moved to Dr. Norcom's plantation, where they will be what Dr. Norcom called broken in. Harriet knew that this move was a result of her refusing Dr. Norcom's sexual advances, and that he was using the safety of her children as leverage to exploit her. At this point, Harriet found an opportunity to run away, and she arranged for her children to be bought by their father, Samuel Treadwell Sawyer. When she ran away, Dr. Norcom pursued her frantically and maniacally for months. She described spending several nights in a snaky swamp where she was bitten by venomous snakes multiple times. Let's just pause on that point. Because this journey of freedom, of finally having the opportunity to be out of captivity and to begin to live in the full humanity that God ordained for her, began with venomous snake bites. We can think of another example of when St. Paul, in the book of Acts, was following the path that God set out for him, and he was shipwrecked and bitten by a snake. The snake bites and the swamps And the shipwrecks do not mean that God is no longer with you or that you're on the wrong path. Both Paul and Harriet pressed forward, knowing that God was with them. Eventually, Harriet arrived at a friend's house. And with their help, she moved from house to house until finally she ended up in the home of her grandmother. 
Harriet's grandmother, a woman named um, Molly Hornablow, had bought her own freedom from the money that she earned as a baker and was able to, as a free woman, buy and maintain her own home in Edenton. That sort of thing was nearly unheard of for especially women living in slavery. And when Harriet arrived at her grandmother's house, she was hidden away above the ceiling joists of a shed with no access except a little trap door. Only her grandmother and an uncle and an aunt knew that she was up there. Food and chamber pots were passed to her through a tiny opening. And she had a small hole where she could see out into the streets. She describes having just enough light to read the Bible to pass the time. Every once in a while, Dr. Norcom would come to the house, suspicious that she was hiding there, but he never found her. She spent seven years living like that. Her children had no idea where she was. They would come visit the grandmother from time to time, and Harriet had to watch them, unable to comfort them, let them know that she was safe and that she hadn't abandoned them. She describes counting the time by observing the age of her children, who eventually lost all memory of her. She lived like this for seven years until she was finally able to find safe passage to New York. And just before she left, she got down from her hiding place to say goodbye to her daughter. And I want to read that interchange here. I slipped through the trap door into the storeroom and my uncle kept watch at the gate while I passed into the piazza and went upstairs to the room I used to occupy. It was more than five years since I had seen it and how the memories crowded on me. There I had taken shelter when my mistress drove me from her house. There came my old tyrant to mock, insult, and curse me. There my children were first laid in my arms. There I watched over them, each day with a deeper and sadder love. There I had knelt to God in anguish of heart to forgive the wrongs I had done. How vividly it all came back. And after this long, gloomy interval, I stood there such a wreck. In the midst of these meditations, I heard footsteps on the stairs. The door opened, and my Uncle Philip came in, leading Ellen by the hand. I put my arms around her and said, Ellen, my dear child, I am your mother. She drew back a little and looked at me. And then with sweet confidence, she laid her cheek against mine, and I folded her to the heart that had been so long desolated. And then Harriet left, headed for New York. She used an established maritime route that was part of the Underground Railroad. She eventually found friends and began working as an abolitionist, a writer, and an activist, working along with people like Amy Post and Frederick Douglass to rally support for the abolitionist movement. While she was in New York in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law was passed which meant that her freedom was no longer secure and that she could be captured at any moment by anyone in return to a life of slavery. She describes waking up on a Sunday morning and hearing the news about the fugitive slave law. She says, there I sat in that great city, guiltless of crime, yet not daring to worship God in any of the churches. I heard the bells ringing for afternoon service, and with contemptuous sarcasm, I said, Will the preachers take for their text, proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of prison doors to them that are bound? 
or will they take from their text for their from the text do unto others as ye would they should do unto you oppressed poles and hungarians could find safe refuge in that city but there i sat an oppressed american not daring to show my face again the terrors of slavery tried to keep harriet from the presence of god but nevertheless the lord was with her she held resilient, continuing her abolitionist advocacy and telling her story. And eventually a white woman for whom Harriet worked as a maid to earn extra money bought her freedom. Now Harriet spends a lot of time in the book explaining how much she hated the idea of paying money to people who treated her as property. But to be able to walk the streets as a free woman was a reality that she'd never experienced before. And she wrote about her freedom being bought. She says this, The bill of sale is on record, and future generations will learn from it that women were articles of traffic in New York late in the 19th century of the Christian religion. Harriet had every reason to resist God, to believe that God was the God the slaves holders told her about. But that's not what she did. The God that she knew was the God of her grandmother, the God of the Methodist shout, of the secret joyful worship of slaves, the God of Jesus Christ, who proclaimed liberty to the captives, and the God who spoke to a poor refugee mother to say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. This is the God that she knew. Just before Harriet's grandmother died, she wrote Harriet a letter the contents of which display how firmly she knew that God was with her. Here's what she writes. Dear daughter, again, I apologize for how tiny that print is. Dear daughter, I cannot hope to see you again on earth, but I pray to God to unite us above, where pain will no more rack this feeble body of mine, where sorrow and parting from my children will be no more. God has promised these things if we are faithful unto the end. My age and feeble health, Deprive me of going to church now, but God is with me here at home. Thank your brother for his kindness. Give much love to him and tell him to remember the creator in the days of his youth and strive to meet me in the father's kingdom. My love to Ellen and Benjamin. Don't neglect him. Tell him for me to be a good boy. Strive, my child, to train them for God's children. May he protect and provide for you is the prayer of your loving old mother. Harriet Jacobs, for the rest of her life, prophesied about the horrors of slavery, the hypocrisy of white American Christianity, which perpetuated such a system, and the particular traumas of black motherhood under slavery and white supremacy. She targeted this message at people like me, free white people whose attention and political will had the power to do something about slavery and make a difference for black people. And if we hear this story and imagine that it's 130 years behind us, then we're mistaken. Her prophecy and the witness that she bore as a mother and a writer and an activist and a Christian is as powerful now as it was then. There's a journalist named Linda Villarosa who collected epidemiological research into the experience of black motherhood in America today. And her work, as well as the research and experiences of countless others, testifies 
to the burden that white supremacy still presents to black mothers and children in our day. I won't detail all the research, but I want to present enough for us to get a glimpse of the prophetic word that Harriet Jacobs still has for us today. Villarosa writes that black women are more likely to have dangerous complications during birth, develop stress-related health conditions, and more likely to have their concerns and symptoms ignored by medical staff. Here are just a couple quick examples of the data. A Department of Health and Human Services report in 2017 found that preeclampsia and eclampsia, which are seizures that developed after preeclampsia, are 60% more common in African-American women than white women, and also more severe. Black women are three to four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes as their white counterparts, according to the CDC. In a national sampling of 2,400 women who gave birth in 2011 and 2012 found that more than a quarter of black women meet their birth attendants for the first time during childbirth, compared with 18% for white women. You might be wondering what can cause this significant disparity and inequality. And certainly racial and economic inequality can play a role. But this problem cuts across economic barriers. Villarosa recounts the experience of Serena Williams, the professional athlete whose fame and fortune should have enabled her to count on the best medical care available. But when she had complications during her pregnancy, her symptoms and concerns were ignored. Villarosa writes, the day after delivering her daughter, Alexis Olympia, via C-section in September, Williams experienced a pulmonary embolism or the sudden blockage of an artery in the lung by a blood clot. And though she had a history of this disorder, and was gasping for breath, she says medical personnel initially ignored her concerns. Though Williams should have been able to count on the most attentive healthcare in the world, her medical team seems to have been unprepared to monitor her for complications after her cesarean, including blood clots, which is one of the most common side effects of C-sections. Even after she received her treatment, her problems continued. Coughing triggered by the embolism caused her C-section wound to rupture, and when she returned for surgery, physicians discovered a large hematoma, or a collection of blood, in her abdomen, which required more surgery. Williams, 36, spent the first six weeks of her baby's life bedridden. So what might be causing these disparities? Villarosa claims that Quote, for black women in America, an inescapable atmosphere of societal and systemic racism can create a kind of toxic physiological stress, resulting in conditions including hypertension and preeclampsia that lead directly to higher rates of infant and maternal death. And that societal racism is further expressed in a pervasive, longstanding racial bias in healthcare, including the dismissal of legitimate concerns and symptoms that can help explain poor birth outcomes, even in the case of black women with the most advantages. I, I read all of those examples just to say that the word of prophecy that Harriet Jacobs bore witness to, to white Christians in the 19th century is a word that we need to hear today as well. Injustice and white supremacy has led to unimaginable suffering for black people in this country. And Harriet Jacobs' message for us today is to pay attention to this injustice and resist it because the Lord is with hurting people. God is with the suffering. 
And God reveals God's self through them, just as the word of God, Jesus Christ, our hope of salvation, emerged from the womb of a poor and oppressed mother. Considering her story, the story of Harriet Jacobs, I wonder how we might see Christ with the hurting people around us. I wonder how we can have a keener sense of who the Harriets are in our city, our neighborhood. I wonder what work we may need to do internally with ourselves and the Holy Spirit to navigate our own histories around oppression or racial trauma and join Christ in the hurting people around us to imagine a way forward of justice and nearness to God. After all, it was to a woman much like Harriet that the angel said, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Let's pray. Dear God, we pray that we would have our ears open to hear the testimony of Harriet Jacobs, a faithful mother, Christian woman, activist, who experienced unimaginable pain, and that we would be ready to listen and respond to her testimony and her witness. God, we pray that you would give us a measure of courage and comfort as we fight injustice and oppression in whatever forms they may present themselves. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.